This is God's word, Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and who came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Amen. I trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Word. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation 2, uh, 8 to 11, page 1, 2, 3, 4, if you've got a pew Bible. So as I said this morning, I got some new glasses. I'm convinced that the philosophy behind very footballs is that you see everything equally badly. And uh, I'm going to try and move my head around enough here to make sure that this sort of jumps out at me. Let, let me I, I tell you a story, a true story uh, that we know from church history. Uh, describe a scene to you that happened long ago, February AD, 50, uh, AD 155. AD 155. The authorities find a bishop, a bishop called a Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, we know it today as the uh, Turkish city of Izmir. And church history tells us that Polycarp knew the Apostle John. He was discipled by the Apostle John. His crimes, Polycarp's crimes, according to the uh, local people, were that he refused to offer incense to a statue of the Roman emperor. The authorities had what seemed to be a very benign sort of policy. You could worship any god you wanted, and there were thousands, but you could worship any one of them, any combination of them, so long as you first worshiped the emperor through a simple ceremony. Take a little incense, offer it to a statue. Polycarp was guilty, it seemed, of believing that his god, our god, had a unique lordship, which meant that all others were excluded. And this they could not tolerate. They were so tolerant, except 
about truth claims. And so Polycarp was transported to the arena. His trial was held. The sheriff and even his father tried to reason with him. What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, offering a little incense? Polycarp arrived at the arena and was brought before the Roman proconsul who put his options to him plainly. He's 86 years old. Swear, he said, and I will release you. Curse the Christ. 86. What is Polycarp to do? We'll come back to him in a moment or two. It is almost certain that as a young man, Polycarp was in the church in Smyrna whenever the letter arrived from the Apostle John. He would have heard it read as we have tonight. The letter on, from John in, in Patmos uh, uh, was, was circulated through these uh, seven churches. The whole vision read. Particular attention, of course, paid to those bits that were particularly relevant to the church in Smyrna. And he, we believe, would have heard it. It's an unusual letter, the second letter of the seven, because it is one where Jesus does not make any criticisms of the church. Philadelphia is like that, but most of them are a mix of sort of blessings and curses, but, but there's nothing negative in what Jesus says here to them at all. We saw last week that Jesus introduced himself as the one who walks among the lampstands, which means that he's in the middle of the church. And so he knows what's going on. He sees it all. He understands it all. And, and yet to Smyrna, he only has encouragement to offer. And that encouragement was something that they really, really needed for just like so many of those that we read about when we were praying earlier on, they were facing a lot of opposition, a lot of tough times, persecution. The issue in Ephesus was love. They had a trouble with loving, we think, each other particularly. But the issue in Smyrna was, was suffering. How were they going to cope with suffering? The city of Smyrna was about 30 miles north of, uh, of, of Ephesus. You see the little map here. Um, here it comes. There it is. So, so the, you landed at Ephesus, and then you did a sort of a, a clockwise circle, and Smyrna was the next one on the list, 30 miles up the coast. And it was, it was really one of the jewels of this area. Uh, about 400 years before this, it had been destroyed by an army, and for a number of years, it had just sort of existed as a number of uh, villages around a sort of a desolate center. And then the, the, the town planners had a dream, of course, because they had this clear sheet, and they designed this beautiful city with, with uh, wide uh, pathways and a deep water harbor. It brought trade from all over the world and so on. And the thing that, that made Smyrna particularly unique was that it had a long link with Rome, because they had been early adopters of Rome. They had supported Rome before Rome was a, a great empire. And so now that Rome was in the ascendancy, Smyrna enjoyed a privileged status. There had been a, a, a sort of a, a competition. There had been bids put in to, to have the privilege of building a, 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 a temple to the emperor uh, Tiberius, and Smyrna was chosen because of its privileged status. And so along with that commitment to Rome went a strong commitment to Roman religious practices. And that made things tough for the Christians. 
because that was what Rome did, of course. They had a very clever policy as they expanded across the world and they moved into a new area where, where uh, people were there who worshiped other gods than the Roman gods. They said, you know what? Your gods seem really, really good. You can carry on worshiping your gods, but in addition, tag on some of ours, and in particular, we want you to, to worship Caesar because uh, that will prove your loyalty to Rome. Just take a little incense and sprinkle it on the fire, say, Caesar is Lord. And, and for most people, that was fine because they, they, they worshiped many gods already. What was one or two more? But Christians couldn't do that. They couldn't call Caesar Lord because Jesus is Lord. And so that made them the butt of all sorts of persecution, the focus of all sorts of suspicions, brought them lots of trouble. Well, two things just to sort of hang what we're saying on tonight, pressure and promise, the pressure that the church is under, and then the, the promise or the encouragement that Jesus gives. So let's think about the pressure. There, there are four particular troubles that, that Jesus mentions here, at least that we want to focus on here. First of all, there's poverty. As we said, Smyrna was a wealthy city, but it seems that the Christians in it were poor. Now, on the one hand, of course, across the world, it has been normally the case, often the case, that Christians were drawn from some of the lower levels of society. Uh, often, many of them were slaves. They, they, they didn't have a lot of this world's goods. But, but that's not why here, it seems, they were poor. Their, their, their poverty seems to be because they were being discriminated against, and this was having a financial impact upon them. As we were suggesting over the last couple of weeks, people were boycotting their businesses. They wouldn't uh, give them opportunities. They wouldn't sell to them. And, and that uh, determination to do things right meant that they couldn't cut corners and use the black market and all of those sorts of things that, that other people were happy to do. If their employers found out that they were Christians, they might have lost their jobs. And as the persecution intensified, they, they maybe had their uh, possessions taken by other people. Uh, that, that happened to other Christians. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, it says this, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You know, as I read that, I thought, we, we, we are so soaked in materialism, that that just seems the most outrageous thing in the world to us, that someone would come and take our stuff, and we would have no recourse. That's what happened to Christians down through the years. Happens today. Poverty has often been the experience of Christian people, and because some avenues have been close to them. We, we've not been used to that. We've been brought up at a time when, when we're telling our kids through our schools, you can be anything you want to be and do anything you want to do. And, and, and Christians think that just as much as the world does. But it might be that there are some jobs, some professions that will be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to maintain a Christian profession in and that Christians will just disappear from in days to come. And undoubtedly, these will be in the more lucrative areas of our society. The question is, will we be faithful if it hits our pockets? Will we believe that in our poverty, we are really already rich? Well, there's one of the areas of 
pressure. Second one is slander. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Well, whenever we read, for example, through Acts and we read of Paul's missionary journeys through this region, we find that much of the opposition, oddly, came from Jews. They weren't in the the, the Palestine, but but it came from Jews, either directly from Jewish communities or from Jewish influence stirring up the crowds and the authorities. And clearly, this hasn't stopped at this point in Christian history, right at the end of the first century. The, the, The Jewish community here in Smyrna, obviously influential, seems to be poisoning the minds of others against the Christians and working to get them into trouble. And as they did this, no doubt these Jewish people believed that they were doing the right thing, that God would be pleased with them. But it couldn't be further from the truth because Jesus cuts through all of that and says that they are a synagogue of Satan. They they, they say they are Jews, but they are not. In in other words, Jews here seems to be just a reference to claiming to be the people of God. They they, they say that they're the people of God, but they're not true Jews. They're not truly the people of God. The the true people of God uh, is the church. It's, It's those who who believe in Jesus. So, so these people are not God's people at all. In fact, they were being influenced by the devil, who after all is the accuser or the slanderer. Again, we know from church history that all sorts of rumors circulated about the early Christians. They were accused of cannibalism because they talked about eating and drinking the body of the Lord. In the blood of the Lord. They were accused of immorality because they called communion a love feast. Satan knows what a useful weapon slander is against the church. And I guess the question is, will we be faithful if it means that when people find out that we're Christians, they put down their coffee and say, really? You're one of them? Now, these things were, were, were happening, but there was obviously more in the way because Jesus tells them about two further trials that they're going to have to endure. Prison, you see verse 10, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. So things weren't going to get better. They were going to get worse. Some of them would be arrested and imprisoned. And, and prison, let's remember that prison wasn't used as a place of a punishment as it is within our society today. It was used usually to hold people until trial or to hold people until execution. So so to be in prison had terrible, terrible overtones. Something, however, here should encourage us. You notice that in verse 10, it is Satan who is the one who is behind their imprisonment. He's the one stirring up the opposition of the Jews, the hostility of the culture, And of course, we've got to ask, therefore, what is it that Satan is doing in terms of where we find ourselves today? What what is his role behind the headlines and the experiences of the church in some of the places that we've read about and in our experience today? But you notice what verse 10 says, that he puts, Satan puts them in prison, but it is to test them. Now, now that seems to be not what Satan is doing. It's what God is doing. So Satan uses persecution to destroy the church, but God takes what is intended to destroy it 
and uses it to refine the church. First Peter 1, 6, and 7. Now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So you see the Bible talks about God refining his people. Christian writers in the past have, have spoken of the crucible. You know what happens in a crucible? Impure metals, alloys and so on, put into this and heat it, and, and the impurities burned off and something brilliant and beautiful results. And God does that as he tests his people. He refines us. My old minister, William Still in Aberdeen, used to talk of God using Satan like a farmer would use a, a deranged sheepdog that he kept on a chain. And he would bring out the sheepdog, as it were, to herd the sheep in a particular direction on the chain. The dog itself thought that he was there to absolutely devour the sheep. The sheep probably thought exactly the same. But the farmer knew exactly what he was doing. How great is our God that the devil should intend to destroy and God should take that and test and refine. That's what Joseph understood, isn't it? As he looks back on his life, at the evil intentions of his brothers, as they sought to end his life by throwing him in the pit, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see what's revealed by that little phrase, Satan will put you in prison to test you. And you're saying, even here you're in God's hands. Some of you are facing deep, deep challenges just now that I don't know about. And you perhaps feel like, like they would crush you and destroy you. And you see the intent behind them to destroy you. And yet God working for our good. Prison. And death. Be faithful even to the point of death. You see, for some, it was going to go beyond economic matters and hurtful and damaging slander and beyond prison, and they would lay down their lives for the faith. And that's bang up to date, because we know that this doesn't just happen in ancient history. It happens today. We, we've heard the story, more martyrs in the 20th century than in all the 19th centuries before. In this century, probably going to surpass even that. Some of those things I read earlier were from uh, the organization Barnabas Aid, there was an article in their magazine I read this week. It said, what is it that God, that, that, that Satan is using to, to uh, persecute the church? And, and it listed seven things. This is what it said. False accusation, the spread of extremist violence and teaching, suppressing the faith of the next generation. So, for example, uh, in many provinces in China, it is forbidden to teach Christianity to children. How would we organize ourselves as a church if we couldn't teach anybody about Jesus until they were 18? Restricting the access to the scriptures, hindering fellowship, teaching, and worship meetings, making sure that you had to have so many registrations for your building that you couldn't have a building at all, inciting mob violence, six and seven, preventing 
conversion. Ten years ago, five Muslim-majority nations had uh, death penalties for conversion. Now it's nine. So you see that the, the church in, in Smyrna was suffering in these ways, but these are just the ways that the church is under pressure in the world today. And, and we should be so aware, brothers and sisters, that the same evil spirit behind the persecutions in Smyrna is at work today, 2018, in Northern Ireland, in the British Isles. His intention is the same. He wants to destroy the church. We, we would do well to think, what is his strategy? Some of these same weapons are used, financial deprivation, penalty, dragged through the courts, fear of compromise, because all he, he wants us to do, you see, is to begin the process of stepping away from Jesus. And he knows, he knows what we are like. The, the devil has, in some ways, a better understanding of, of what we are like than we have. And he, he knows that if he gets us to, to, for an instant, put our financial security before the Lord... Or, or put our love of our reputation before the Lord so that we do not suffer slander, so that we go into work and we fit in with the crowd so that we will be accepted. He gets us to do that and puts us on a pathway that leads us to destruction so that we become one of those people who in 20 years, people say, do you remember her? Do you remember him? They used to love Jesus and neither know her. Can you see what the evil one wants to do in your life, in my life? Where is he pressing, even as you think of the pressure that he brings upon the church? Well, what does Jesus do with this church that's under pressure? Well, he brings them many encouragements, and he promises them things, and, and here's our sort of second half of this. Jesus, you notice this, he, he doesn't commiserate with them. He doesn't come to them and say, do you know what? I'm really, really sorry for your trouble. I'm really sorry that this is what's happening. You know, I never really intended it to be this way. He doesn't say that at all. He says, I know your trials. He says, do not fear. In other words, it's not a mistake. He knows what he's doing. He tells them, first of all, that, that, that he's the one who has has been there. You, you notice the way Jesus introduces himself to each of the churches. It's, it's in relation to that initial vision in chapter one, but it's also in some particularly relevant way to, to what the church is facing. And here he, he introduces himself as the one who died and came to life again. Now you think about it, your, your life is on the line and, and, and you, you begin to, to think, what is it about Jesus that would particularly encourage me? Well, surely it is that he has gone through death and has conquered it, has come to life again. He is the one who is victorious. You see, Jesus has been where these Christians are. He, he has walked the road of suffering. He's borne poverty and, and slander, imprisonment, and death. And he's gone through all of those things faithfully and come out the other side and come to life again. And so he understands what they're going through and he reminds them, you see, that this life is not all that there is, that, that, that he is the one who has conquered, 
who's come to life again. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You see, if you, if you believe that this life is all that there is, then you'll do everything to avoid this kind of suffering. But if you believe there's something else, it changes things. What do you believe? Do you believe this is your best life? Are you attracted by that iniquitous book of Joel Osteen's, Your Best Life Now? Don't even give that to the charity shop. Straight to the dump room. This is where you've got to have it, he says. Do you think such an outlook would have worked in Smyrna? No, because they knew that their best life was not now, but after. And so they could endure. Are we working for what does not perish? He is the one who's been there, who has conquered death. He's also the one who's in control. Do you notice that, that Jesus says to them, that they will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, that's probably not meant to be taken literally. It's another one of those symbolic numbers that, that Revelation is, is very fond of. And, and, and what it's saying really is it's just for a time. It's not open-ended. I'm in control of how long even this lasts. That's something we can hold on to when we go through tough times, can't we? Even the duration of this is in the hands of an all-knowing Savior. It will not last forever. He's in control. And then also there is reward because he promises those who are faithful the crown of life. There is a heavenly reward for faithfulness to Christ. Keep going, he's saying. Keep standing for me, even if it costs you now because there is a reward. One day you'll be with me in glory. There'll be a crown of life. It will be worthwhile. Now, we need to know that, don't we? We need to be reminded that the benefits of allegiance to Christ are not all down here. They're not even mostly down here. They're mostly held in glory for us. They are an inheritance. And frankly, we need to know too that there's a rescue from the alternative. You see that? It says, the one who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. He who, in verse 11... Now, we're going to say more. Revelation is going to teach us much more about what happens when we die. Very helpful. But the question is not, will you die? Because everyone will. The question is, when you die, will you live again or will you die again? Because to be without Christ, you see, is to go to the second death, an eternal death, an eternal punishment, an eternal and everlasting separation from God. But to walk with Christ and to walk with Him, even through hardship, is to escape that, it is to have the crown of life rather than the second death. And so, Jesus is saying, there are great eternal matters at stake in how you follow 
He reminds them that he's been there. He reminds them that he's in control, that there is reward. And you know, today, many of our brothers and sisters across the world have met or are going to meet in places of worship, maybe not able to sing hymns out loud. And they're going to go into a week, a Monday to Friday, one that may be marked by impoverishment for some of them, slander. Some of them will end this week in jail. Some of them will be in glory, not because they're sick, but because they have been put to death. And yet they are sitting today determined that they will be faithful because they believe that Jesus really has overcome death, that he is in control, that there is reward for all who trust him. Is that how we enter this week? Determined not to bend, but to follow him? What about Polycarp? 86 years old. He stood in the middle of the arena, hundreds of people calling for his death. The Roman proconsul gave him the choice of cursing Christ or offering incense to Caesar and offering incense to Caesar or being put to death. And Polycarp famously said this, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they wrought wood and they built a pyre and they put Polycarp on it and they burned him. And the last words he said were a prayer. O Lord God Almighty, Father of your blessed and beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have been given knowledge of yourself, I bless you for granting this day and hour that I might be numbered among the martyrs to share in the cup of your Messiah and to rise again to eternal life. And today, may I be received among them before you as rich and an acceptable sacrifice. Now, Polycarp didn't get there in one big go. He heard the challenge of what we have heard tonight as a relatively young man. And he made decision after decision after decision in the little things and the big things so that when the biggest thing came, he said, I'm going your way. Jesus first, beyond everything else. What about us? Let's pray. Lord, even as we begin to think of our brothers and sisters through history and across the world, uh, tonight we maybe feel a little bit small and inferior and condemned. But we pray, Lord, that in the challenges that face us, 
those temptations that face us to compromise, whatever they might be. We pray that we will be men and women, young men and young women, who stand for you, who believe the gospel, who know that Jesus is risen, that heaven is real, that you are king. And we pray in Jesus' name.